I'd like to, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'd like to thank all the organizers, DPA, New York Academy of Medicine. I think everyone on the panel are the people that I know personally or whose work I've admired for quite some time. Um, so it's a real pleasure. It's also a bit of a chagrin. As Paul mentioned, I'm, I'm involved in a number of things. I'm, I teach in the public health school. I teach in the School of Arts and Sciences. I'm also incoming director of the African American Studies program there, and I'm, I'm actually forgetting probably a few responsibilities that I carry as well. I, I wear a lot of hats, and I still get one paycheck, actually. Um, <laughs> most unfortunate thing of all. So I actually have to leave a little bit early because I'm involved in a, in a bunch of meetings and other such things back at my campus uptown. So I may have to leave the panel early. And I, I look forward to listening to the podcast and the video cast of this um, later on. <clears throat> as a historian of drug policy, uh, this is a very interesting moment in which we find ourselves in the state level and, of course, the national level. Um, and uh, as, as, as someone who has studied the past 40 years or more of drug policy and who is also keeping as much of an eye as possible on these contemporary developments, a few things uh, often come to mind. And uh, you know, quite often it's, it's the role of the historian, um, like some kind of ancient Greek character who kind of wanders through the streets, you know, admonishing people to remember their past and then wondering why doesn't anyone listen. And then we just kind of <laughs> we become more and more curmudgeonly as we get older and then we get tenure and retire, so uh, <clears throat> so I, I don't want to bring down the the, the frisons of the moment, but there I, I think there are some things that we should think about um, as we move into this moment of thinking of rethinking uh, uh, criminalization and, and challenging the punitive paradigms that have uh, prevailed in policy for the past uh, really the past century since the Harrison Act of 1914, and certainly uh, since the war on drugs declared by Richard Nixon in '71 and really escalated under. Um, the actor-in-chief Ronald uh, Reagan. Um, New York State actually, uh, as, as many of you probably know, began, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, mandatory minimum sentences in 1973 with the Rockefeller drug laws. And of course, uh, Assemblyman Albrian uh, to my left was a major player and finally uh, breaking those down. Thank you very much for, uh, <coughs> by the way, for making history on that. What I think, in, in terms of the moment in which we find ourselves now, you often see this discussion of, well, drug use is, is not a criminal justice problem, it's a medical problem. But it, there are also many other ways of thinking about that problem as well. Just the same way that we had, <clears throat> that we uh, realized the risk, we didn't just run the risk, we, we ran right through it, into it, through it, and, and carried it. Uh, of over-criminalization, there is also a risk of over-medicalization as well. And what we don't really recognize quite often is that historically, medicalization and criminalization often, you know, kind of, they'll, they'll walk hand in hand once in a while. And so actually, the, the events that led to the Rockefeller drug law, wow, okay, I'm, I think I'm being interrogated all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> the light is very bright here. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. That's what dissent yeah, I, I, I didn't think this was live, I was apparently so. Um, uh, what, what we often don't recognize is that moving, um, it, it, moving into the Rockefeller drug laws, there was this period, in fact, where New York State, under Governor Rockefeller, it was largely his idea, as were the drug laws in 1973. But from 67 to 73, 74, we ran an experiment of compulsory treatment, civil commitment of addicts. Some 24,000, in fact, over about a five-year period until uh, the state Supreme Court ordered a habeas corpus of some 5,000 cases, and the Narcotics Addiction Control Commission um, 
just decided, okay, well, let's just, <clears throat> rather than review 5,000 cases, we'll probably just let everyone go and move to the models in which we find ourselves now run under uh, OASAS. Um, this is not an indictment of OASAS's current policies. This is just, this was the, when, o, when OASAS first began its NAC, this was the experiment. It was well-intentioned. People, physicians and politicians and ordinary people alike thought that if, if, if we want to not necessarily go towards criminalization and think about medicalization, but yet we still want to quote unquote clean up the streets, get all the junkies you know, into programs, we, maybe we should force them. It ended up being a therapeutic and a political disaster. Um, and in fact, so much so that it was in part for that reason that, that Rockefeller, who's also looking at a presidential bid, by the by, this is you know, very important, uh, sought to distance himself from the whole project and said, what is much more expedient is we should just lock everybody up, which is what he proposed in January. <coughs> uh, began to whisper about it in late 1972, proposed in, uh, it was uh, signed into law in January 73 and enacted September 1st, 1973, only recently to be uh, reformed. I mention all this because we are at this moment now where, um, just to conclude, where <coughs> we are rethinking uh, criminalization, but at the same time we are also rethinking our models of medicalization. And we should be very clear that there are many models of medicalization which will not work. And if they do not work immediately, and, and particularly less so today, but for much of the 20th century, after we were able to cure you know, tuberculosis, vaccinate against polio, all these diseases that plagued humanity for years, we got rid of them in about a generation. And ever since then, we've had the mentalities that we can, we can, we put a man on the moon, we can cure anything kind of mentality. Some things there will be intractable problems and we should not become frustrated. And even today in New York State, <clears throat> for example, there's a, a measure, um, uh, several senators, Democratic senators here uh, in the state who have uh, put together a series of proposals to address the quote unquote heroin epidemic. In my work as a historian, I've been writing a book about heroin policy, national and state policy uh, over the past 50 years. So I cover the past 50, I've been working on it for 50 years, but it, it feels like that, but it hasn't been quite that long. <clears throat> um, but uh, new, new uh, proposals coming down the pike are very careful to say that we need to have more access to medical treatment, meaning addiction treatment. However, there are two things that we should also keep our eyes on as well, which is uh, there is quite often attending these discussions here in New York State, but you look in a lot of states where you see heroin popping up in suburbs. And then there's quickly this idea that, oh, well, heroin addiction has jumped from the ghettos to the suburbs, which in fact has not. It was a ghetto problem, quote unquote, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In fact, it was also a white, artistic, and lower class problem as well there. We just didn't study it as much back then or, and didn't arrest nearly as many people back then. But in this case, really the jump is from prescription pills to heroin. It's not a geographic and demographic jump from like spilling over to the, from the ghettos into the, the good, nice, you know, decent people of the suburbs, which is exactly how Nixon sold um, his reform. Uh, so we should be careful <coughs> about the, the racial implications for how we think of reform. This is important because I think it's quite easy for us to identify those who, are, who have you know, driven the drug war in very odious ways, um, <coughs> you know, racially inflammatory ways. Those people are pretty easy to identify. But within, those, within reform circles, we should also be careful about our language as well as how we think about that. The other thing too is that we should also be careful to understand that if, if medicalization has its limits, 
we must also think more uh, capaciously about how we, how we pursue that and how we also think about drug addiction. We, also, we should keep in mind that drug policy over the past 40 years, the war on drugs under Reagan, was not drug policy, it was urban policy. It was a way of crippling the political efficacy of the traditional, what had become the traditional democratic base, which is to say cities since the New Deal under FDR, cities, blacks, and unions. And by urban policy, by evacuating you know, support for HUD, for all types of social welfare, going by the way into the Clinton administration, I mean, he has to take some quote unquote credit uh, for that. But there was so much about it that was actually urban policy, not drug policy. And so mass incarceration has been a way of attenuating black and brown and urban political efficacy. So if we think that we're actually remediating bad drug policy simply by thinking in terms of medicalization, we seriously run the risk of, of replicating some of the problems that the left found itself impotent to combat uh, over the past 40 years. Thank you so much. I'm, I really look forward to listening to the rest of the conference. This is fantastic. Thank you.